Thank you, worship team. Uh, it's great to see everyone this morning. My name is Josh Wines, and I am a member here at East Shore Baptist Church. And uh, Pastor John has challenged me to fill the pulpit this morning in his absence. I just want to thank the church for giving me this opportunity. Psalm 119, let's do it. So, 176 verses. Pastor John's been leading us through 176 verses in this psalm. And that's no joke, right? That's a big, big portion, uh, biggest, longest chapter in the Bible. And I got to be honest, when Pastor John first approached me about doing one of the sermons in this series, um, I asked him what the topic was going to be, and he's like, um, yeah, it's Psalm 119. And I remember thinking, wait a minute, that's, the, that's that chapter where the guy is, for 176 verses, he's saying basically the same thing over and over again, right? <laughs> that he really, really loves the law of God, and that's it, that's it. the end. And I was like, wow, I'm going to have to really stretch this topic out. You want me to speak on that for 40 minutes? <laughs> but I mean, I think that's how it goes a lot. We, we typically like to assume something about the Bible without having, ever having spent much time there. Okay? And um, I'm glad that I've actually had the chance to sit down in Psalm 119 for the last couple of weeks because uh, it's given me a chance to reflect on exactly what the Word of God, what role the Word of God has in my life. How much do I truly depend on the Word of God? Okay, and does my passion for God's Word match that of the author of Psalm 119? So today we're going to take a look at the next two stanzas in the chapter. That's going to be the stanzas of Semek and Ayin in verses 113 to 128. Now, in these uh, two stanzas, we're going to be confronted with some, some tough issues that the author brings up. The author is going to show us uh, who he clings to for his hope and how God responds to the threats of these wicked men. We're going to see that the author is, he's surrounded almost on every side by enemies that want to tear him down, that want to dismantle his faith, okay? The psalmist, he writes about the difference between the, the wicked person and the righteous person in the first stanza, and then in the second stanza about how the servant of the Lord lives, how he turns to the Lord for protection, and how he puts his hope in God alone, and how he waits for him. And as I was reading and studying, I began to realize just how applicable these two stanzas are to our lives as believers. And I think one of the most convicting yet rewarding things uh, for me about taking a deep dive into Psalm 119, spending time in there, uh, came by looking at the life of the psalmist and asking myself, does my heart reflect that? Is that how my life looks? Okay. Let's ask ourselves, who is it that we are putting our hope in? Okay. For our safety and security. And what do our hearts truly long for in our day-to-day -day lives? So with some of those questions in mind, let's open up our Bibles to Psalm 119 verses 113 to 128 and read what the Lord has to say. If you don't have a Bible, there is one in the seat back in front of you. We're going to be on page 609 in that Bible. So I'm going to read, and then we'll pray, and then we'll, we'll jump in. Starts like this. 113. I hate the double-minded, but I love your law. You are my hiding place in my shield. I hope in your word. Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. 
Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. Hold me up that I may be safe and have regard for your statutes continually. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes for their cunning is in vain. All the wicked of the earth you discard like dross. Therefore, I love your testimonies. My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. Verse 121, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Give your servant a pledge of good. Let not the insolent oppress me. My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. Deal with your servant according to your steadfast love, and teach me your statutes. I am your servant. Give me understanding that I may know your testimonies. It is time for the Lord to act, for your law has been broken. Therefore, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Therefore, I consider all your precepts to be right. I hate every false way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this opportunity this morning uh, to gather together in your name. We pray as we hear from your word, Lord, that you'll speak to us, that you'll communicate, God, and that we'll hear clearly about your love, and, and that we'll see your son, even from all the way back in Psalm 119, even from the Old Testament. Thank you so much for your word, how it speaks to us. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, so this first octave, one of the first things we should notice um, when reading through it, these first eight verses, is our first point. The path of the wicked is contrary to that of the righteous. The path of the wicked is contrary to that of the righteous. The author of this psalm says in verse 113, I hate the double-minded. So this is one of those verses that, you know, I read it and kind of did a double take on it. It didn't immediately register it. Um, Christians aren't supposed to hate, are they? Yet, here we are. We have the psalmist saying, indeed, he does, he hates the double-minded. Now, for some of us, maybe this isn't a foreign idea at all. Did you know that the word hate occurs more than 150 times in the Bible? Okay, That on numerous occasions, we are being instructed to either hate or to reject something. Okay, For, uh, for example, Proverbs 8.13 says this, To fear the Lord is to hate evil. I hate pride and arrogance, evil behavior, and perverse speech. Later in this same chapter, Psalm 119, 163, the author says, I hate and detest falsehood, but I love your law. Yet Jesus says in Matthew 5, 44, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So how do we respond to 113? I think this might be one of those rare examples where an oft-quoted Christian phrase might help guide us. Okay, If you guys have ever seen the musical Hamilton, I love the musical Hamilton. Um, my wife and I can probably quote almost every song. Um, if you've ever seen that, you'll remember the phrase, hate the sin, love the sinner. Okay, and maybe you've heard that before outside of the musical Hamilton. Um, C.S. Lewis actually talks about this in his book, In Mere Christianity. Um, he says that for a long time, he used, to, he used to wrestle with this very idea of hate the sin, but love the sinner. Okay. And he didn't actually come to terms with this idea until years later that he had actually realized that he'd been doing this for a long time okay, with himself. Okay? 
He hated the sin, the greed, and the conceit that controlled him all too often, but he went on loving himself anyway. He goes on to say, Christianity does not want us to reduce by one atom the hatred we feel for cruelty and treachery. We ought to hate them. Not one word of what we have said about them needs to be unsaid, but it does want us to hate them in the same way in which we hate things in ourselves, being sorry that the man should have done such things and hoping, if it is any way possible, that somehow he can be cured. So the idea there is that the way that we hate sin in ourselves but still seek our own well-being, okay, that's how we should feel about others. So in that sense, yes, we should hate the sin of others, but we still ought to seek the well-being of sinners as far as it depends on us, okay? Now, the author is also very specific in saying that not only is he, he doesn't hate sinners, he, he's specific in saying he hates the double-minded, okay? That's what verse 113 says. Not just the sin of others, but especially double-mindedness. What's double-mindedness? I looked up the Webster definition of double-mindedness. It says wavering in mind, undecided or vacillating. And to be sure, we have plenty of examples throughout the biblical text of the seriousness of the sin of double-mindedness. Because being indecisive doesn't sound that serious, right? It doesn't sound super serious, being indecisive. Well, when it comes to our faith in God, it's a serious issue. God speaks very seriously about the sin of double-mindedness. One example that I found in particular is in the book of James. Uh, Chapter 1, verses 5 through 8 says this. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously all th- to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he received anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. James is saying here that double-mindedness in our faith, essentially it equates to instability in our walk, okay? If we're unsure of where we're going, of who we're going towards, how are we ever going to get there? The author is fed up with the double-mindedness of those who are surrounding him. He detests double-minded people. So let's think for us, right? What are some examples of a double-minded person today? Maybe it's a person that serves God on Sundays only to serve his own desires the rest of the week? That's double-mindedness. That's what it looks like to be unstable in your faith on a weekly basis. A double-minded person might also um, demand forgiveness from someone while also faithfully building up bitterness towards another. That's being double-minded in your love towards your neighbor. Okay, And if that's you let me remind you that you're only trying to fool God. God sees through double-mindedness, and God is not fooled. Now, in contrast to how the double-minded live, however, the author says, but I, I love your law. The way of the wicked is contrary to that of the righteous, and it shows by how they treat the law of God. Okay? The author is saying, here's how the wicked live. They're wavering, they're wavering back and forth between faith and no faith, between God and no God. But I love your law. I am not wavering. 
The righteous, they love the law of God. To the righteous, the law is life. The author says, I will not, I will not waver. I love your law. The wicked, they have no regard for the word of God. The double-minded, they waver in their allegiance to it. They're back and forth on it. They might respect some of it, but not all of it. And they might just be indifferent to it. Like, they don't really care either way. Now, another big difference between the righteous and the wicked is in their attitude towards the law of God. He goes on in verse 114, we see, You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Now, one of my favorite chapters in the Bible is Psalm 191. And in Psalm 191, we see powerful imagery to describe our God as our shelter and our protector. In verses 14 and 15 of that Psalm, God is speaking. He says this. He says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. Here we can see that the righteous, they have in God a shelter where they can take cover from the wicked and from the double-minded. And the author here, is, remember we said he's finding himself encircled by enemies. He's surrounded, but he can rest because he knows who his protector is. The same goes for those of us who trust in God. Okay? In the worst of all circumstances, when life has you pinned down, we can always rest in the shelter of the Almighty. He's the one who gives us the, the imperishable hope of salvation. Always rest there. Not only is God our hiding place, He's also our shield. You, O oh Lord, are a shield about me. We sing this this morning. Sometimes we can't simply just run away from whatever situation we're in. Right? And that's okay because in those times, that's when God is a shield to us. Now, if you're asking, how does that work? How exactly does God act as my hiding place or my shield against evil men and temptations? The author says this, I hope in your word. The wicked, they have, they have no regard for the word of God, but for the righteous, it is their entire hope. Okay? It is primarily through God's word that his promises are kept for us. It is his word that we need to run to and his word that we need to wield in times of temptation or difficulty. And this also, this pertains to, to all of life's problems, not just, not just when our enemies surround us. Or whatever trial God has set in your path or um, whatever circumstance you're facing, there, there's hope in the word of God to face that, to confront that trial, to, to confront that circumstance. One verse, for example, that I love to turn to when I'm struggling to trust in God's persevering love for me is Philippians 1.6. It says this, for I'm confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. I really like that verse. Okay, and that verse tells me that even though I struggle with sin, even though I'm a sinner and I'm, I struggle with sin constantly, God will not stop the work that he started in, in me until he has finished. And I can rest in God's faithfulness that, that's found in his word. Turn to his word in, in, in life's circumstances. This verse that helps me to cast away my thoughts of inadequacy or self-pity, okay, and to rest in his faithfulness. Your daily strength and your deliverance are found in God's promises to us in his word. And it's in the promises of God's faithfulness to you that you will find the power to resist, even when the wicked surround you. 
So what we should be doing is actually familiarizing ourselves with the Word of God. That's the application. Strive to spend some time, even a little bit of time, in the Bible every single day. The more, we, the, the more we are in tune, the more we know the Word of God, the better we can recall His promises to us in difficult times. Verse 115 says this, Depart from me, you evildoers, that I may keep the commandments of my God. Now, this is a great verse. How many of us need to break from the company of those who aren't interested in keeping the commandments of God? Right? The author knows that this is true. It's very difficult to follow God and to also be surrounded by those who have no interest in Him or who waver in their faith to Him. There is danger in constantly putting yourselves in the company of those who have no love for God's law. And it will be much harder to remain faithful to God's commands when there isn't anyone around you who has any interest in doing that. Now, this verse also is not making the point that you can never hang out with an unbeliever. Right? In fact, we should have a desire to be around unbelievers in order to share Jesus with them. Instead, what we should be thinking here is if, that if my inner circle is comprised mostly of those who have no desire to obey God or to help me to keep his commandments, then my inner circle probably needs to change. Okay, let me repeat that. If my inner circle is comprised mostly of those who have no desire to obey God or to help me to keep his commandments then my inner circle probably needs to change. We should be surrounding ourselves as much as humanly possible with those who want to help us to carry out the will of God for our lives. The author of Hebrews, he makes this point in chapter 10, verses 24 and 25. He says this, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So this is why we gather every Sunday. It's, it's vital that we meet together for the sake of encouragement. Amen. And being surrounded by believers, by believers helps encourage us to continue to obey our God. And without that frequent encouragement, it'll be easy for our hearts to start drifting away. Don't be fooled. The, the wicked, they will eventually try to attempt to steer you away from God's will for your life. Consider, um, for instance, we have uh, home fellowship groups here at the church. It's a great way for you to, to meet other believers in this church and just to be encouraged by them outside of gathering on a Sunday morning. This will help you grow deeper relationships, and um, especially with those who can relate to you that, uh, on the path that you're on as a child of God. Yeah, that's going to be vital. Um, Another way that we can tell the difference between a righteous person and a wicked one is by the righteous person's humility. Now, the author is going to turn now to ask God for help in verses 116 and 117. He asked God to sustain him so that he can live in verse 116. The author knows that he needs the word of God to strengthen him on a daily basis. Okay? He asks again in verse 117 for God to uphold him, that he may be safe that he might have regard for God's statutes continually. And I see real humility there from the author. However, I know that it's easy to, to read a chapter like Psalm 119 and to walk away feeling discouraged uh, because the author is constantly emphasizing his obedience, right? It seems to suggest that the author is a lot closer to God than any of us ever will be. I know I've 
read chapters like Psalm 119 before and kind of walked away feeling a little bit discouraged. He's always talking about how, how obedient he is and how close he is to God. And it's like, man, does my, do, does my life look like that? Does my heart reflect that? It's a little bit, can be a little bit uh, discouraging. For instance, verse 101 in this chapter says, I have restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. Or even our passage today, verse 121, says this, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. However, when we take a closer look, and we see that the author is very aware of his failures. In fact, the very last verse in the psalm is this, 176, says, I have gone astray like a, like a lost sheep. Seek your servant. See, the author, he desires obedience, but he knows that it's God's grace that upholds him, that empowers him to obey. His self-awareness is another quality that sets him apart from the double-minded man. He knows where he's weak. He knows where he falls short. He knows how fragile his life is, and he turns to God to sustain him. That's humility. That's the humility of a righteous person. The double-minded person won't do that because he has no sense of his own weakness before God. And that's why the double-minded or the wicked man will ultimately meet their dreadful and terrible end. Verse 118 and 119, moving on, they make it clear what the destiny of the wicked will be. This is where it gets a little bit scary, guys. Verse 118 says this, You spurn all who go astray from your statutes. You spurn all who go astray from your statutes. Now, this is, is, is a serious subject, but I like the word spurn there. If you look up the definition of spurn, it's, uh, I brought it, to reject with disdain or contempt. So, uh, if you guys like football, I'm a, really, I'm a big football guy. I really like football. Um, when I see the word spurn, my mind immediately jumps to Derrick Henry. If you know who Derrick Henry is, he's this massive running back for the Tennessee Titans. It seems like Every Sunday, there's another highlight of Derrick Henry just stiff-arming a defender into oblivion, into another dimension. And that's what I visualize when I, when I see the word spurned. It's not only a rejection, but a rejection with contempt. Okay? The verse continues, their cunning is in vain, in 118. Um, I quoted one scholar here, Danny Aiken. He says, they may have lied to and fooled others. They may have lied to and fooled themselves but they have not fooled God. The wicked, they attempt to carve out their own path aside from God's law, but all they receive in the end, the godly stiff arm. He discards them like dross, says verse 119. Now dross, if you don't know, is the impure material that, that melts away then is discarded when a particular metal is being refined. Okay, the wicked, they're not useful to God. They're good for nothing. That's what the verse says. In the end, God will throw them away. How does the author react to God's judgment on the wicked? Verse 120 says this, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. The author knows of the divine and the awesome judgment reserved for the wicked, and this causes terror in him. So I think here we see the correct response towards God's judgment, right? It's not a joy of seeing the wicked finally get what they deserve. That's not what the author has here. It's, not a it, it, it's actually a genuine terror at the understanding of how mighty and how awesome 
the penalty of the wicked will be. It's an actual terror of God's judgment. So how should we respond to that? To seeing God's judgment in verses 118 through 120. Well, if you are a follower of God this morning, I, I think that the appropriate response should be concern for those destined to experience this judgment. We need to tell them. That's why we have an evangelism ministry moment. Because it's our job to, to tell them. The Bible is explicit. 118 through 120 is it's harsh. It's explicit. That's what's coming for those who, who refuse to trust in God's, in his love and in his, in his gospel. We need to tell them. One of the main responsibilities of the believer in Jesus after salvation is to go on mission. Okay? The impending judgment of God on sinners should inspire us to evangelism. If it doesn't inspire us to evangelism, we're probably not understanding just how terrible and awesome the judgment of God will be. It should inspire us to, to go, to go and tell them. Now, if you're here this morning, you're not a follower of God. And two things. First, you must beware. Okay, the Bible is explicit in saying that this is the fate of those who reject God and refuse to trust in the message of the gospel. Okay, God's wrath and his judgment, that's the final act for those who, who refuse to accept the gift of Christ's sacrifice and place their faith in his death and in his resurrection. It's a harsh reality, but it, it is a reality. It's a reality of the Bible. Now, the second thing that you should know if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning is that this judgment doesn't have to be the end of your story. doesn't have to be. The blood of Jesus was shed for anybody who would turn from their sin and receive life, and you can have that gift, and we're going to come back to that. But make no mistake, the way of the wicked is, is contrary to that of the righteous. Our paths will look different, and as believers in Jesus, our number one concern should be to keep the commandments of our God. So let's start by developing a love for God's Word. Spend time in the Word, a couple minutes a day if that's what it takes. Surround yourselves also as much as humanly possible with those who want to guide you in obedience. Okay? They want to help you follow God's path, God's will for your life. Surround yourself with those kind of people. This can help to begin to rework your inner circle if it needs reworked. Okay? And another great way we could do that is by beginning a discipleship relationship with another believer. Somebody that, that you might have noticed desires to walk closely with God and can help you to do the same. So don't be shy. Take your faith into your own hands, okay? Moving on to our next point and our next stanza in verse 121 is point B. The path of the righteous pursues justice and waits on God. Now this stanza is going to show us how the righteous person lives and it gives us a better idea of how our lives should look uh, as compared to an unbeliever's. Verse 121 says this, I have done what is just and right. Do not leave me to my oppressors. Um, I like the message for this verse. It's a paraphrase of the biblical text. It says, I stood up for justice and the right. Don't leave me to the mercy of my oppressors. That's the message translation. Again, the scholar Danny Aiken says of this verse, taking a stand for the Lord leads to a prayer for help. Taking a stand for the Lord leads to a prayer for help. Because our God is a God of justice, we can be sure that we need to stand for justice. However, in today's day and age, it's sometimes hard to define 
what justice is. It can mean so many different things to so many different people, right? And this is why we need to be lovers of the Word of God. It's through His Word that we come to know the character of God and begin to understand what God cares for, okay? What He considers to be just and what He considers to be unjust. The Bible's not always black and white with every issue that we might face today, but we need to have wisdom when deciding to take a stand, uh, when deciding to take a stand or not. And when, when we do make a stand for justice, however, we can be sure that we will be opposed in some fashion, one way or another. And I think that's what the author is referring to here. He's saying that, Lord, I've stood for your cause. Uh, I've stood for you and for your cause my whole life, Lord. So please help me. Help me because I'm being attacked for my faith. Verse 122, he says, give your servant a pledge of good. In other words, promise me that you're going to be there for me when I take this stand, this, this stand for justice. Give me a pledge of good. Promise me, Lord, that, that you're going to be there for me. Stand up for me. He's saying, I stood up for you, Lord, and now I, I want you to stand up for me. The path of the righteous is a pursuit of justice while trusting in God to handle the consequences. Sometimes those decisions are going to be hard, whether to stand or not. Sometimes we might not know exactly what the, the proper stand is, what cause to stand for, but we can be sure that when we stand for God's justice, He will stand alongside with us. He will handle the consequences. In this sinful world, there, also, there will be consequences for, for choosing to stand up for what is right. But know that your God is not asking you to face those consequences alone. Call on him to be your shelter in those times, just like the author is doing here. And verse 123, moving on, says, My eyes long for your salvation and for the fulfillment of your righteous promise. The New American Standard Version has it like this. My eyes fail with longing for your salvation and for your righteous word. Here we see the result of the author spending years of his life taking the good stand against injustice. He's grown weary. Okay, he's tired, even to the point of giving up. That's what the author's facing right now. Michael Wilcock, he's a professor at Trinity College, and he speaks for the author. He has this to say about verse 123. He says, I have done what the word rules, but I'm still waiting on what it promises. Okay? Some of you have spent a long time pursuing righteousness and justice in the name of the Lord, some longer than others, okay? And like the author here, some of you might be feeling weary or beaten down by that. Whether it be believers that oppress you or, or sickness that weakens you or your sin nature even that burdens you, some of you have felt the sense of weariness waiting on the Lord to act, waiting on the Lord to show up, to stand up for you, waiting on God to make it better. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus, then you are constantly living in a state of waiting. I've often uh, heard Pastor John refer to this uh, state or this con condition as already, not yet. Okay, believers in Jesus are already guaranteed salvation when they choose to place their faith in Christ, but the full enjoyment of that salvation is still yet to come. Already, not yet. We are waiting on God to bring it. The fulfillment of the promise of God is yet to come for us as believers in Jesus. Okay, we've been promised it, but we're waiting on it. Now, the author, he's worn down by those that oppose him, but he doesn't lose faith in the promise of God. 
He holds firm to the promise of God. He knows that God is a promise keeper. Okay, and I think for us, the application here is the same. Trust in the word of God above everything else and remember what it says about you. One verse in particular that I like is John 6, 47. It's really simple. It says this. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Remember that despite whatever, whatever pain we might have to endure in this life, we have a salvation promised to us in the next life that far outweighs any of our present sufferings. So no matter how long you've been struggling, whatever is burdening you, whatever circumstance you've been facing and you've been waiting on God to act, know that he is a promise keeper. He will keep his promise to you. In our next verse, 124, Psalmist, he's going to ask God to deal with him according to his steadfast love. This is where I really like, this is where it gets good. He asked God to deal with him according to his steadfast love. This is a plea based on the, the covenant relationship that the author shares with God as Father. Okay, without this intimate relationship with God, there would be no way for God to deal with him other than with his wrath. Okay, and if you have also never placed your faith in Christ, and accepted his sacrifice for your sins, there is not a way for God to deal with you according to his steadfast love. Let me repeat that. If you have never placed your faith in Christ and in his sacrifice for your sins, there is no way for God to deal with you according to his steadfast love. Okay? The word of God says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because we have all sinned, because each one of us has personally sinned, God says that there must be a payment to make that right. He requires a payment for each sin that's been committed. And what is the payment for your sins? What's going to be the payment for your sins? What's Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. But specifically, for the wages of sin is death. Death is the payment for your sins. And that's not just a physical, right now kind of death. This is an everlasting kind of death that, that Paul's referring to in Romans. This, it's an eternal separation from God in a place reserved for those with no payment for their sins. A place called hell. And the Bible is super, very explicit about this. However, God loved you so much that he sent his son to be the payment for your sins. Amen? Jesus chose to go to the cross in your place to pay the penalty that is required for your sins. And now by placing your faith in Jesus, by believing in him, you can also have the promise of eternal life. Okay, God loves you and wants a relationship with you. Without Jesus, there is not a way for him to deal with you according to steadfast love, according to his steadfast love. He wants to deal with you according to his steadfast love. You need a savior. We need a savior. We all need a savior. Verses 125 and 126, the author, he asks for God to teach him his word and pleads with the Lord to, to fight for his cause. Here we see the servant of the Lord humbly asking God to give him understanding. And the author shows us that no, no matter how long we've been waiting on God or how hard we've been fighting, we should never stop learning more about or growing in Jesus. Okay? The author then shows real character by asking God to act. Why? Because his law is being broken. Here's where we can tell that the righteous person or the servant, 
He cares more about God's reputation than his own. The author has been surrounded by evildoers. He has been oppressed by the double-minded, but he has consistently shown a greater concern for God's glory than for his own well-being. He's consistently shown a greater concern for God's glory than for his own well-being. The more that we come to know Jesus and his love for us, the greater concern we will have for his glory, for his namesake. And with these last two verses, we, we end up where we started. Verse 127 says this, Therefore I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. The author has seen the double-minded and the lawless act with contempt towards God and has created in him a great love for the law. I think it's a rule that if you preach here at East Shore, you have to include at least one Spurgeon quote. Um, Pastor John, I think, mentioned that to me before I started. So here's my, here's my Spurgeon quote for today on verse 127. It's Charles Spurgeon says, So far from being swayed by the example of evil men so as to join them in slighting the scriptures, he was the rather led into a more vehement love for them. As he saw the commandments slighted by the ungodly, his heart was in sympathy with God, and he felt a burning affection for his holy precepts. Okay, to summarize that, the more that we see this world drift away from the law of God, the more compelled we should be to drift back towards it. Okay? Seeing the wicked turn their backs on God's commandments should only embolden us in our pursuit of God. shouldn't intimidate us. We should recognize that the path of the wicked, it is contrary to that of the righteous in every single way. Rejoice that God has granted us salvation, but respond to God's promise by proclaiming his word to unbelievers. That's the response. Take that word. Take the love that God has given to you and take it out into the world because people need to hear it. The paths that we are walking on are either leading us to life or to death. That's the only two choices that we have. That's what the Bible says. Life or death. And if we've been granted life, then we're also responsible to tell others about that life. So take the example of the author and cling to the word of God, which gives us our hope. And wait with longing for that hope to be revealed in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you so much for this time this morning. We thank you for your word, which gives us life. We thank you for your word that gives us hope where we can find your promises, God. And, um, and we thank you for your son especially. We thank you for his death on the cross that gives us life, God, that, that he paid the penalty for us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.